at Sir de Mon Spring in Acadia National Park and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. The time's 9.59, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring, is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. My guests today <coughs> are uh, Shammy, sorry, Jamie uh, Bissonette, Chair of the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, and uh, Nicole Friedrichs, practitioner in residence at Suffolk University Law School in Boston, where she directs Indigenous Peoples' Rights Clinic. <clears throat> we'll be discussing the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission and the report uh, it commissioned uh, Suffolk Law to do on the Maine Indian land claims. My co-host today uh, is Sherry Mitchell, Indigenous Rights Attorney and Director of the Land Peace Foundation, as well as the, a member of the Penobscot Nation. So uh, thanks for co-hosting with me, Sherry. Always a pleasure to be here with you, Donna. Thanks. And uh, my guest right now is uh, on, on the line is uh, Jamie uh, Bissonette, chair of the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. Uh, Jamie, can you hear me? Morning. Okay. That you're good? Yep. <laughs> okay, Jamie. Um, you, uh, we, we talked about, uh, the, first of all, what I want to start with is the uh, description of the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, just to let our audience, uh, listening audience, know what that body is. Mm-hmm. So if you could explain that, Jamie. Sure. Um, the, Maine Indian, uh, the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission was, is an entity that was created in law in the 1979 uh, Maine Implementing Act at the state level. And the Tribal State Commission was designed to be an intergovernmental body with equal representation from the tribes, uh, initially uh, from the Penobscot Indian Nation and the Passamaquoddy Tribe, and later expanded to include the Maliseet, uh, the Holton Band of Maliseet Indians, and um, equal numbers of representatives from the state. And the commission was tasked with um, specific uh, jurisdiction over water, extended reservations, and and a few other things. But its primary role has been the to continually review the effectiveness of the main implementing act, the Settlement Act, and its impact on Wabanaki people. And so it's it's really in that area of our statutory charge that our conversation today is framed. So just to be clear, the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission was created 
from the uh, Land Claims Settlement Act? As a result of it, um, you know, Madonna Soctoma likes to say, and Donna, you probably remember this, that it was widely acknowledged that there were a lot of loose ends um, about how uh, the Settlement Act would be implemented. And, uh, you know, Madonna says she remembers those things being moved over to the Tribal State Commission and being told, well, the Tribal State Commission will be formed, they will deal with those things. And one of the experiences that um, has resulted from that is that uh, those things haven't been dealt with because the Tribal State Commission, where even though we were given the authority to continually review the Act, we have no authority to press and hold accountable the state to change it. Necessary so you have really no uh, no teeth, I guess you might say. Yeah, no teeth, no um, teeth at yeah, all. Yeah. So uh, wh- who is? Well, uh, no teeth, except for uh, you know the the way that uh, Mainers who are concerned about tribal state commission about tribal state relations have listened to the tribal state commission differently and. Increasingly, you know, due to the work of you, of you uh, other tribal leaders, and uh, Sherry Mitchell, your co-host, you we see more and more state citizens uh, taking to heart the um, evaluation brought forward by the tribal state commission. Yes, but my my uh, my point is that the uh, tribal state commission was uh, basically formed to have input into legislation and, and policy planning mm-hmm. uh, between the, the tribes and the state. And you've, I think the original idea was to, and as you said earlier, uh, iron out some of these gray areas uh, and make decisions with input from both the tribe and the state. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, there's no mechanism now. I guess they've, well, they've taken things apart there's no mechanism now to uh, affect the legislature, and uh, there's no reason, really, for the legislature to uh, take any action. They mm-hmm. can just sit there and listen and not do a damn thing. Excuse my language. <laughs> <laughs> it, and there's a, a, a piece of federal history that frames the construction of the Tribal State Commission. And at some point, um, you know, during, during the show, I think we should reflect on that. I uh, who okay so tell explain to us who is on that commission you know how many who and who appoints the uh, representatives on that commission well currently there are 12 uh, commissioners two from each of the the tribes um, and there are six state commissioners there are six six state commissioner seats but under the tenure of Governor LePage, um, though there are, he has not appointed state commissioners in over three years. So we have three state seat vacancies. Um, so when the tenure when the tenure ends, they're appointed for how many years? They're appointed for three years. They can sit beyond their tenure um, if they are not if if no one else is seated in that position. But we, we lost three commissioners 
to one, um, you know, one retired from state government and left the commission. You know, another completed her tenure and decided she needed to focus on other things. And a third relocated. And if you've relocated outside of the state, you can't continue to sit um, as a state commissioner. And so those three seats have not been replaced. So you now have three from the state that three were from the state, remain yeah. that were appointed by? By Governor LePage, all three of them. Okay, and they're still there, but he has not reappointed anybody to fill those three vacant seats. Is that right. Correct? And despite um, there being 20, well, in the last year there were 20, and then there were an earlier another 20 applications from state citizens, very qualified state citizens, to with an interest of sitting on the Tribal State Commission. And uh, those um, applications have sat, you know, ignored for over two years now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but the uh, the Tribal State Commission um, has still been meeting, is that correct? Absolutely. Um, you know, a, a year and a half ago, the tribes uh, decided to leave um, the state legislature. The tribes pulled their tribal representatives. And at that point, there were some pretty alive questions about whether they would continue to participate in the Tribal State Commission given that it was the Tribal State Commission, you know, has to do with, um, you know, work between the tribes and the state. And so they, uh, we developed a consensus work plan, a four-point work plan, uh, in during the summer of 2015. And all of the tribes agreed to seat, keep their commissioners seated at the table to the extent that we focused on that negotiated work plan and nothing else. Um, those were, they were very important issues that they wanted to have addressed. So we've just about completed that work plan. We have one um, outstanding piece of work. And the, um, the central component was this report. Um, and so we will be convening to see whether or not the tribes keep their commissioners at the table or what a subsequent work plan might look like. Yeah, but let's let's be clear that the commissioners that were appointed by the uh, tribal chiefs are not uh, the same as the tribal representatives that yes, walked absolutely. out of the legislature. Exactly, they're yeah. not. So that's, well, there's an overlap with the Passamaquoddy. Traditionally, they have had their um, tribal rep has at least when the tribal rep has been from Indian Township, that that tribal rep has also sat on the commission. But they're not sitting on the commission as the tribal representative. They're sitting as an appointed right. commissioner. So, they're, yeah, two different, uh, two different roles. situations. Yeah. Uh, so you've, you've done some um, reports in the past. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember the first one you did was uh, at Loggerheads. Mm-hmm. That was pretty uh, pretty well read. I think a lot of us have have heard about that report, right? Uh, and and that was uh, you know I can say that there was, <laughs> if there was ever any good times or better times, uh, it was back then, and it really wasn't that good, because <laughs> no. we were at loggerheads, but right. things have progressively uh, gone downhill from uh, from that report. You know, immediately after the at loggerheads report was delivered. Um, things began to go downhill. Um, you'll remember that 
we issued a special report regarding saltwater jurisdiction focused on the, um, the Passamaquoddy conflict over uh, saltwater fisheries. And the, um, the legislation that was created in 1998 to do an end run around the amendment provisions in the Settlement Act uh, came on the heels of the At Loggerheads report. The At Loggerheads report was released in 97, and this retro and it, it spawned a bunch of creative legislation uh, to to address state jurisdiction over the tribes, to uh, to look at tribal uh, jurisdiction over natural resources. There were all kinds of uh, reform legislation uh, that was introduced at that time, and then the Tribal State Commission was asked to do a four-year review of the impact of uh, civil jurisdiction on Wabanaki tribes. And so for four years, beginning in 1998, the Tribal State Commission (coughs) filed reports on the impact of civil jurisdiction over the tribes. Um, Let me just um, ask you, um, you you said they were creating bills to address the... Well, the tribal representatives in 98, and I, were you there, Donna? Yes. In 98? Um, you were, and Fred Moore was also there. Mm-hmm. And there were bills that were introduced. By the, by the tribes? By the tribes. Okay. By the tribes. Not by the state. Not by the state. Okay. But they, they did have some traction, <coughs> but the, the result was a study was required. Yeah, that's the way that always happens. Yes, exactly. Uh, Cher, do you have any comments? <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> I'm awake. I'm just uh, trying to be tactful. Yeah. Um, one of well, the thi- I'm, I'm just trying to present what happened. I'm not giving an interpretation mm-hmm. of what happened at this point in time. Yeah. Um, there's there's a, a number of things that are really concerning about the trajectory of the Tribal State Commission. If you look at our trajectory, um, the Tribal State Commission has continuously put forward a set of recommendations. They're consistent. Um, they are practical. They would create a foundation for mutually beneficial solutions. But I think we all know that none of the recommendations have ever been taken up by the state. And um, I think if Paul Tebow said the state, you know, in Passamaquoddy v. Morton, the state um, snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. And the state has a narrow interpretation of the victory that they, that they snatched. And they have clung to that, particularly in, by utilizing, by not allowing, um, you know, mutually beneficial, collaborative problem-solving to go forward, and which forces the tribe to use the courts as a vehicle for reform. And the um, Office of the Attorney General has been very successful in pushing their particular interpretation of the Settlement Act in the First Circuit, because the First Circuit is unaccustomed to dealing with Indian issues. Okay. Um, uh, Sherry, do you have yeah, a comment You know, one of the things I think is important um, for people to recognize is that 
the state has continuously circumvented the um, Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. And, you know, it's a statutory authority that the state is required to um, utilize the commission to resolve any disputes. Um, And yet it has continuously, as you said, circumvented this mechanism that was statutorily created, violating its own laws um, to diminish tribal rights. And that, um, you know, the, the state has since the signing of the Maine Indian, uh, Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act, um, they have continuously tried to diminish, further diminish tribal rights. Um, this was supposed to be the final document. And so uh, can you speak a little bit to that about the, the requirement of the state to engage and participate in MITSIC legally and how they have um, abrogated their responsibilities under that? Yeah, um, well, particularly in recent years, uh, but but throughout the entire, uh, see, they, the Tribal State Commission charge, uh, you know, statutory charge is to continually review the implementation of the Act and make recommendations for improvement. And that can be either narrowly read, which the state has chose to do, to narrowly read that, um, or it can be broadly read or even read in the way it was understood at the time that it was written, that that continual review would take a, what was a problem-solving mechanism. Um, and the state has consistently denied that the Tribal State Commission is a venue for dispute resolution. And the Tribal State Commission, Commission has never been adequately funded to be prepared to do complex multilateral dispute resolution. Uh, that, that said, that acknowledged, the Tribal State Commission has done amazing work in analyzing the issues that the tribe and very occasionally the state have brought before the commission. And as you said, put forward uh, you know, very reasonable recommendations. But as Donna said, we have no teeth. We cannot uh, force the implementation of those recommendations. And if they don't gain traction in the legislature through as a legislative amendment to the Settlement Act, then... Um, you know, there, there is no other avenue to press this except in the courts. And unfortunately, it is the First Circuit um, and the superior courts in the state of Maine that have defined the Settlement Act. And they're wrong. They have made, uh, you know, very severe errors in the judgments that have been handed down. And those errors have compounded themselves and, you know, created a tighter and tighter box. Um, In in 2013 and 14, the Tribal State Commission looked at the socio and economic indicators that the tribes need to confront in their own community. And we were able to trace those socio and economic indicators directly to the um, constraint of this narrow box that the state, uh, through, through the court decisions, 
continues to push in on the tribes, and we were able to build a case that the Settlement Act itself had caused a humanitarian crisis in Wabanaki communities. And that, um, that evidence was accepted by the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Indigenous Issues, and uh, the rapporteur went even further and said that the conditions that have been created in Maine rise to the level of the top three issues in Indian country that must be addressed by the Department of the Interior. And when the Department of the Interior reviewed the evidence that Mitik brought forward, the Department of the Interior concurred that a humanitarian crisis was taking place in the state of Maine as a direct result of the Implementing Act, and certain steps need to be, needed to be taken so that the Tribal State Commission could enter into the role, um, the role uh, that was initially envisioned, the role where it would be a, a place that would have the authority to resolve disputes and have the uh, ability to make those resolutions binding. And that's what we don't have right now. We, we can resolve a dispute in the Tribal State Commission and it means nothing because it's not a binding agreement. But I question whether the Tribal State Commission, as it's structured now, could actually resolve a dispute because that's an intergovernmental process. So I really feel as though um, if, if the Department of the Interior's recommendations are taken, um, you know, recent recommendations, uh, January uh, <clears throat> this year, are, are taken, are accepted, then we're looking at a major reconstruction of the Tribal State Commission. And that would involve um, you know, the tribes determining uh, the extent to which uh, you know, the commission would take on this role and the circumstances under which the commission would take on this role. So this is a complicated. Well, we can hope that there will be some resolution or at least some movement forward because it's been uh, stagnant on the part of the state for so long um, in regard to mm-hmm. resolving disputes. They have not, however, been stagnant in regard to continuing to take from the tribes. Exactly. And um, under 1723, it talks about how prior conveyances will also be subject to the Settlement Act. So anything that was priorly conveyed would be subject to the Settlement Act. However, the state has taken it upon themselves to come in and to attempt to take territory that was not priorly conveyed. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. as you've said, the courts in the state of Maine and the First Circuit have completely ignored the canons of construction. Exactly. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you here and uh, bring on Nicole Friedrichs. Uh, Nicole uh, Friedrichs is a practitioner in residence at Suffolk University Law School in Boston, where she directs the Indigenous Peoples Rights Clinic. And uh, Nicole, are you on the line? I am, yes. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, uh, Jamie. And thanks for agreeing to be on the show. Of course, my pleasure. Yeah, uh, and uh, let's uh, let's move into your uh, report. Uh, And... uh, if you could now, I'm going to let Jamie in, introduce you about, on this because Mitzik actually uh, funded the report. I, I understand. Um, Is that yes. right? 
Yes, we did. Yeah. Um, the the tribal state when we the tribal state commission published the special report on on the saltwater fisheries in um, 2014, and the thing that we drove home is that the federal law is different from the state law, and there is an article of construction in the federal law that states that when there's a conflict of interpretation between the federal law and the state law, that the federal law will prevail. And that is not, um, that particular uh, construction of the Settlement Act has not been acknowledged by um, the state of Maine, uh, despite amendment provisions that are built into the state of Maine, which acknowledge that the, there will be changes to the state act. And so when we were in discussion with the Judiciary Committee about these two provisions, the amendment provisions and the Article of Construction in the Federal Act, the Judiciary Committee chair said, this, this is a game changer. We had no idea that there were differences between the federal law and the state law. And so the chairs of the Judiciary Committee felt that research should be done into this. So the Tribal State Commission, um, you know, developed a proposal to do this research and brought it back to the Judiciary Committee with a request that the Judiciary Committee appropriate additional funds to do this important research. And that was voted down in the committee. But the Tribal State Commission reconvened and the commissioners unanimously uh, decided that this research had to go forward. And so we uh, reconvened Constructed our operating budget to uh, fund a major uh, research project into the construction of the federal law and the interpretation of the federal law. We put out an RFP. We had seven applications from that RFP, and one was from Suffolk Law School uh, Indigenous People's Rights Clinic. And so... Um, after a, jur a uh, jury process, Suffolk University uh, Law School was chosen and Nicole put together uh, an incredible team of researchers and has delivered a, a, a very well-researched, reliable report for us. Okay, Nicole, you want to go ahead and explain your what you did and your, your uh, observations and findings? Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I can first start with just identifying the areas that MITSIC had asked us to research. Um, there were four specific areas that the commission asked um, us to look into, uh, and those areas uh, centered around uh, primarily um, the Federal Settlement Act, MICSA, the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act. Um, the first one had to do with uh, the implicated treaties that, that formed the basis of the land claim and Section 1723, which deals with um, resolving that land claim, but Mitzik was particularly interested in seeing what the force and the reservation of rights under those treaties and how Congress might have discussed those. They also asked us to look into the definition of sustenance and protected sustenance practices, language that's found in the State Settlement Act, but Mitzik was interested in how Congress examined, discussed, and considered those, those uh, practices. The definition of internal tribal matters was also something 
that was of interest. Again, language found in the State Settlement Act, but Mitzik was interested in understanding how Congress considered that, that phrase, that term. And then finally, uh, two provisions of the Federal Settlement Act that deal with the application of federal law. And those are Section 1735B and Section 1725H of the, of the federal law. Um, so we um, focused our research on federal archives, and so we made multiple trips down to Washington, D.C., and researched the National Archives for a few days, as well as the archives located at the National uh, American Indian Museum, where which stores some of the National Congresses um, on American Indians um, and some other practitioners who were uh, involved in, in the uh, discussions and drafting of MIXA at the time. Uh, we also looked at the archives of the uh, senators, uh, particularly the main senators who were involved with the drafting, and that was William Cohen. Uh, his archives are stored up in Maine and Orono at the university. Um, we looked at Senator Mitchell, who was relatively new to the scene at that point, um, and then um, Senator Muskie, who had switched roles kind of just prior to or around the time the federal law was being drafted, but we examined his, his uh, archives as well. So we looked over about 2,000 pages of materials, we think, um, and tried to identify documents, materials, and this had to, you know, these were drafts of bills, these were uh, minutes for meetings, these were uh, memos that the state of Maine or um, different departments within the federal government were dra drafting as part of the drafting of the federal law. So we looked at a, a fair amount of materials and tried to identify the areas that uh, Mitzik was particularly interested in, present those findings, um, and then offer some observations on those. Um, so I can share some of those highlights if um, um, on those, if that's of interest now, or sure, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> we only have a, you know like a half hour to do this, and so sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I only do the highlights. But so um, around the treaty rights, uh, there's some language that we found, uh, in particular from the Senate report. So the Senate report is a document that the Senate drafted as part of its. Um, drafting of the Federal uh, Settlement Act, and it's a key document when you're looking at the language of the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act, the actual text of the bill, to look at the Senate report, and it's clear that all parties um, involved use the Senate, or were hoping to use the Senate report as a document that would be relied upon if there were any issues or questions around the interpretation of the text of the bill. So it's, it is a key document in this, in this analysis. And the Senate report is pretty clear in uh, recognizing those treaties um, and the reservation of those rights of, of those treaties um, as still existing as, as it applies to the, the main tribe. So there's a clear statement. We talk about in the report the Reserve Rights Doctrine, which is a principle of federal Indian law that says that anything the tribes have not um, granted to the states are reserved to them. So if, if um, under the treaties that were implicated by the land claim, um, if there was a reservation of rights around hunting and fishing or natural resources, those still remain intact, and it's only a clear, explicit statement from Congress that can abrogate those, those rights. Um, another area of, um, of research was the topic of sustenance and protected sustenance practices, which I know is of particular interest right now, given some of the litigation that's going on. Again, there's language in the Senate report that recognizes that those subsistence rights would not be lost under the Settlement Act, 
uh, and they remain intact as well, which was what was of particular interest to, to us as, as research was um, the word subsistence and sustenance were actually used interchangeably. And through some of the discussions we had with Mixic, we learned from tribal members that those words have different meanings in, in, in um, Penobscot or Passamaquoddy languages. And um, we thought that was of some interest and worth kind of exploring and having further discussions around if there are different uses or meanings of those words, and Congress and the state are using one word, subsistence, and maybe the tribes are focusing on, on, subs, on sustenance, what does that mean in terms of was there a shared understanding of what was being talked about? And um, that was pretty clear with the research that we found, the documents that we found that there was these different uses of words and raises the question of whether people really understood at the table <laughs> during the negotiations whether um, it was the same thing. Um, internal tribal matters, again, was a key concept of the jurisdictional arrangement between the tribes and the state and the State Settlement Act. And it was addressed by Congress um, during the hearings and the report and through some of the documentation. Uh, um, the Department of Interior um, discusses it and makes note of it as um, being a, a reflection of tribal sovereignty. They, the Congress and DOI seem to make a link between the two in terms of intertribal tra tribal matters and, and kind of a, an example of tribal sovereignty is the internal tribal matters of, of, uh, of the tribes as articulated in the MIA. Um, and then finally, another key part, uh, which I think was a, um, a bit of new information for all involved, were the two provisions that create a um, framework for determining when federal law applies to the tribes and when it will not. And this is somewhat unusual in federal Indian law um, world in that federal law is plenary when it comes to Indian affairs and governing the relationships between the tribes, the states, and the federal government. And here you have a federal law that actually limits the application of federal law to these these tribes in the state of Maine. So it is an unusual provision. I don't think, um, at least with one section, 1735B, uh, where it actually limits the applications of federal laws that are adopted after the passage of MIXA, um, I don't, I can't, I don't know of any other example of where that exists in another settlement act that other tribes might be subject to. But was, what we learned through um, the research was the impetus for these provisions actually had to do with limiting the application of certain federal laws dealing with the environment. So it was a very specific focus. It wasn't kind of a broad um, application or non-application, really, in this case, to prevent the application of federal law to tribes. It was really supposed to be about federal environmental laws. And we learned that the Department of Interior actually suggested that those laws be listed in the federal bill. Um, that suggestion was ignored or rejected. We're not sure why, uh, but we did come across a document that shows the DOI proposal listing about six or seven specific federal laws that would not apply to the tribes. But ultimately, um, Congress decided with broader language that doesn't have a a list, but more of a kind of a preemption test. And if a federal law preempts um, a state law and affects um, the kind of impacts the special status of tribes and affects and preempts state law, then it would not apply in the state of Maine. And then finally, with with 1735B, which is the um, law that deals with the application of federal laws that are adopted after 1980, that was added very, very late in the process. Uh, we found no um, discussion, meetings, 
hearings. It was not part of any of the hearings, any materials as to why that was included, you know, who proposed it. Um, it was literally added a few days before the full House and Senate voted on it. So, again, these two points, um, we think, especially with regards to 1735B, there was really no discussion that we could find of, you know, are worth kind of raising, um, kind of would warrant a further discussion or um, around, you know, what was the purpose of this, um, given the impact that it really has on tribes. So those are kind of the main points that we found in the research on the specific um, categories of or topics of research that Mitzik had identified for us. Hi, Nicole. This is Sherry Mitchell. How are you? Hi. Hi, Sherry. Hi. Um, it's good to talk to you this morning. I just want to um, talk about a couple of these um, provisions that you're talking about. Um, my concern, as uh, is shared by many tribal members, is that um, one with the addition of that provision at the very end, um, that there was no uh, consent by the tribes that mm-hmm. that provision be added. It was kind of backdoored in at the last minute um, without any discussion um, by the tribes or without any consent by the tribes. And you can't have a two-party agreement where one party does not offer their consent for all of the provisions. Um, you know, one party can't just unilaterally at the last minute throw in terms that have not been discussed. Right. Um, but also about the implications of the limitation of federal law in this case. Can you talk a little bit about the implications of that and how how that's been broadened and applied um, since that time? Well, you know, the focus of our report really was on the drafting and passage of MIXA, so our work really and our analysis, our observations really focused on that time. You know, I'm somewhat familiar with the cases that have happened since, but I, I you know, it's not something I've really studied in this context. Um, but I, you know, I do know, and you obviously, many of you probably have a better sense as well, um, that there have been numerous uh, cases, litigations, um, and some of some of which have touched on 1735B, and not all have been the centerpiece of of that particular provision. But it has been raised and has been discussed by the First Circuit and the District Court of Maine. But it clearly, you know, that piece, along with the other topics that Mitzik identified around internal trouble matters. Um, sustenance, obviously, have all been subject to numerous court cases over the past 37 years, and there's you know, one pending right now. So from an, you know, kind of a broad, um, the broad implication is that, and I think this is one of the impetus, obviously, for this research, was that there, has, there is this, this relationship between the state of the Maine and the tribes that often ends up in a courtroom and often ends up um, with decisions that aren't necessarily favorable for the tribes. And it, it, it seems to be a pattern that seems to continue with no end in sight. Um, so that's kind of the broad implications. For, for Can I just um, interject here? Uh, there's, there's a piece that's a particular, and I think, um, Sherry, you're kind of, I'm trying to locate in my notes, there's a, a, a federal law that requires um, that every... Every time a uh, the jurisdiction of a tribe is circumscribed, that there has to be a um, a referendum taken at the tribal level, and that's why the state of Maine in the 
crafting of the Maine Implementing Act and the um, you know, Carter administration and Department of Justice were really saying, look, uh, this Maine Implementing Act, you have to have a referendum on it. You know, we have to have a vote from the tribe accepting the Maine Implementing Act. And there's a lot of questions uh, about how that was done. It was done very last minute. Uh, information was, was given, you know, on a, on a three days ahead of the vote. And, like, the tribal members were snowed with information. They weren't given the opportunity to really look through it or and it was interpreted for them rather than having them go through a self-interpretive process um but so they have on paper these um you know evidence of some kind of referendum taking place in both the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot tribes but then they go and for to Washington DC and with this last minute addition here to the Settlement Act, they uh, proactively uh, preempt the application of federal Indian law beneficial to Indian people. And, and Jamie, let me just ask you a question. So if they, there has to be a referendum of the tribe mm-hmm. accepting the terms of the right. settlement agreement, and then they change the terms yes, exactly. following that referendum, doesn't that make the agreement that was signed void or at least voidable it may it it brings a whole series of questions into place that might result there sherry and i i I would say uh yeah we have some really we we have some really serious questions about this but particularly the research that suffolk did around 1735b 1735b as as nicole has stated does not exist anywhere anywhere else in this country it's specific to maine and it was obviously introduced without any consultation and the other piece i feel that's crucial about the suffolk university research tribal state commission asked suffolk university to track the important meetings that took place and to track attendance when possible at those meetings and if you really look through that on their website, and Nicole, we should talk a little bit about the website, um, you can see that the, the tribes were not included in a lot of the conversations where these the the actual provisions of the Settlement Act, were, I mean, of the federal law, were hammered out or, you know, um, conflicts were resolved. But this last piece comes out of nowhere. It's an insertion. And so I, I ha- we've done, you've done interviews of um, Pesamaquati and Penobscot negotiators, and every single one of them told us that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we've been given the proof. They said this came out of nowhere. It was even in the bill. I have a copy of the bill um, that was given to the tribal negotiators a day before, and the typeface is different for 1735B. Mm-hmm. It was like you know, added in at the last minute and typed in on the copy. And so, but we haven't had um, the necessary uh, research to back up the claim that this provision did not get scrutiny by the tribes. And now we have that. So that is a game changer. And uh, my read of the federal law is that that would have required another referendum at the tribal level. One of the Um, other things that I think is interesting is that, as you've stated and we've talked about, it's been 
it's been brought before the court a number of times. There have been issues that have arisen that have um, implicated the Settlement Act that have been brought before the court. And many of the negotiators who negotiated the Settlement Act are still alive. Mm-hmm. However, during all of these um, reviews, rarely are they brought in to discuss what the terms were of those negotiations. So it's like the state is able to throw in these last-minute provisions, mm-hmm. able to interpret it in any way that they see fit, um, and that the tribal position has completely been disregarded, not only throughout the entire process, but since the Settlement Act has been signed. Yes. Absolutely. And then there's another piece, too, Sherry, that came up in the sustenance subsistence conversation. Um, in, in the case of all of the Passamaquoddy negotiators and a few of the Penobscot negotiators, the, English was their second language. They were, are, uh, fluent Passamaquoddy speakers who spoke only Passamaquoddy in their childhood. And the impact of that, uh, I don't think, can be uh, overstated. Uh, and that came out in when Suffolk University brought their early research before the commission, and a number of the negotiators were actually in the room. And, uh, you know, they this discussion about sustenance subsistence but, um, well, that's one of the things that the canons of construction were designed to alleviate was the discrepancy between um, what was exactly. being said and what was being understood, where ambiguities were to be resolved in favor of the tribes or right. in the way that the tribal people would have understood them. And that's, uh, that's something that, uh, Nicole, if you could talk a little bit about that, about the, um, the research that you did that points to Congress being very aware that the canons would apply to the interpretation of this act. Right. I mean, there's definitely some language that they use, um, and I think purposely, um, to trigger federal principles of, uh, you know, Indian law. Um, And that the reservation, they use the word um, reserve rights, it's clearly a a use of the, or an implication of the reserve rights doctrine. talking about hunting and fishing rights and treaty rights, um, clear, again, implication of those, that body of law as well. Tribal sovereignty, clear implication of, of that body of federal Indian law. In terms of the canons itself, um, I mean, there's, there's no kind of explicit statement the canons of construction apply, but it's clear, you know, it's clear that Congress and the DOI are still working in this world of federal Indian law and those principles. What really you know, what, one of the final observations we make in the report is that, yes, there is a um, use of some of those terminology, but, and, there, and, and, that, and there is that kind of context of federal Indian law, but what it's up against is a state settlement act that doesn't really recognize that body of law. There's this tension that we kind of identify between um, the unique, and it's often referred to as a unique settlement, especially with regards to jurisdiction on the state side. DOI talks about it that way. Um, the state of Maine talks about that way. It's seen as a positive kind of negotiation and agreement that's ultimately adopted at the state level. And when it goes to Congress, which it needs to, because Congress has plenary power, 
it's talked about in similar terms, but what we noticed as practitioners in 2016 reading over these documents from 1980 is that this body of federal Indian law, yes, it, it, it clearly applies to the main tribes, but it's, it, it's, it's, it feels like it's being kind of, there's the, you know, it creates this tension, this friction between these, these, this one framework on the state of Maine side with a body of federal Indian law that is pushing up against it. Um, so um, that's kind of ultimately what we kind of conclude is that you have this framework, this agreement that is not working um, as exhibited by the relationships between the state of Maine and the tribes and even the hearing earlier this month. Clearly there's that tension and obviously the, the multitude of, of cases that, have, are, that are pending or have, have, have been litigated in the past. Um, but uh, there is definitely a tension between the, the state and what federal Indian law requires and, and recognizes in terms of the rights of, of tribes, the tri- inherent tribal sovereignty of tribes. And the canons are obviously a piece of that. And the canons are a, a piece of federal Indian law that, as Sherry's pointed out, have certain rules about how you interpret these laws. Um, and uh, there's a clear application of that as well. Uh, Nicole, do you want to speak to the fact that the uh, Department of uh, of uh, Indian Affairs or the Interior Department of yep. Interior was left out of that last year of negotiations? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it wasn't the focus of our research, um, but because you know, there's there's so much history that happens before April, March, April of 1980, when Congress uh, then steps in to to do its part of this Settlement Act. I mean, obviously, this has been going on for for a decade. So we did come across a fair amount of materials that predate the April 1980 uh, benchmark of what we were looking at. And so we did review that most in part because we were educating ourselves and it obviously provides the the context for what Congress was about to do and the context of how they were thinking about it. But we did learn through, I think primarily just reviewing the, the transcripts of the hearing that the Senate holds in July of 1980, that DOI, Department of Interior, and their attorneys were not involved from about November 1979 right up until the MIA was was passed in the state. And it's not really clear as to why, um, but there's an... Sure. There's a a piece of of research around that why question that I'd like to kind of uh, consider here. Because there's a couple of references in the congressional record where, and in the state record, it's actually paralleled in both places, where Tom Tureen states that the tribes want to, quote, avoid the conflicts mm-hmm. that are going on uh, with other with tribes in the West. It's very nondescript. But, um, you know, if you look at what was going on in the Department of the Interior, in um, 70, uh, Jamie, I have uh, a question for you. Have, have you spoken to any of the negotiators that were present at that time to get any type of clarity on what that might have meant for them? The, which, the, the that they wanted to exclude DOI and to avoid complications that other tribes were having because it seems they, like a really it, ambiguous statement. It's an ambiguous statement, and I and I actually don't think I actually don't think this came from the tribes at all. 
because I can't find any of the negotiators that ever had this conversation. I think it comes from the reaction that was taking place in the Indian Affairs Committee. Um, you know, Senator Meade was the chair of the Indian Affairs Committee during, quote, the golden age of Indian law when, you know, the Indian Self-Determination Act was passed and, uh, you know, a number of, of these uh, laws that have enshrined uh, tribal sovereignty. And when he went home in um, 76 to stand for re-election, he, he almost lost because of the work that he had so diligently promoted out of a sense of fairness to Indian people. Mm-hmm. So when he went back to Washington, D.C. after this narrow victory, he did a 180-degree about-face. Yeah. And the, um, he introduced with Cunningham the Omnibus Indian Jurisdiction Act, which is interesting. It's 1977, which is right around the time that all this was being negotiated at the state level, uh, which would transfer civil and criminal jurisdiction uh, from the tribes to the state. It's and- also interesting to note, um, when I was working for Interior, there was a meeting of um, the tribes who had uh, agreements similar to the Maine Settlement mm-hmm. Act, uh, and it was discussed freely in the office that these were the absolute worst agreements mm-hmm. that had been made across right. the country, and every right. one of them was negotiated by Tom Tureen. Yes, every single one was negotiated by Tom Tureen, and there, what ended up happening, which is really fascinating to me, as a result of this 1997 law, is that uh, they couldn't get it through Congress. There was a lot of, you know, Department of the Interior really didn't want any part of it. And so they, so a state tribal commission was created by the uh, Association of uh, State Legislators. And that state tribal commission, its charter almost mirrors the language of the main, of the, of the MITSIC, and the framework of the, um, you know, Omnibus Indian Jurisdiction Act is a blueprint for jurisdiction in Maine. And um, Senator, uh, James, uh, State Senator James Peaks was a had leadership on the committee, and he was very closely aligned to to Cohen. So there were these other. Uh, kinds of uh, of relationships being discussed. Congress wasn't embracing them, but there were state legislators that were actively involved in this conversation. NCAI and uh, was was trying to get a handle on it. Deloria and Trimble were right there in the conversations, but the worst part of parts of those conversations found their way into all of these settlement acts. And the idea that they were an improvement came from this push uh, that perhaps some things might be better resolved between the tribes and state. And ultimately, the state tribal commission was only able to come to consensus on cross-deputization and was unable to move forward on anything else. So that kind of gives you an idea of what the prospective legacy 
we might experience here in the state of Maine from adopting a, uh, a, a untested framework. And that's what the state of Maine did. They adopted an untested framework and have refused to look at the outcomes of that framework, and so, uh, which has been disastrous. Not for the attorneys, though. No, you're mm-hmm. right. You're right. There are certain attorneys that have gotten quite wealthy, and I believe Tom Turin was one of them. Yeah, Correct? I believe he walked away from it with a private jet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, we're, we're uh, running out of time here. Um, I... Uh, I'm going to give uh, I'm going to give sh- sh- Sherry the last word. Okay. Well, I think that it's really important for us to consider that um, in regard to this agreement, the state has failed to meet its statutory requirements involving mm-hmm. Mitzik. Um, they have failed to meet the federal requirements um, under the reserved rights doctrine and under the canons of construction. The implications of that for the tribe has been a complete denial of the tribe, uh, tribe's ability to develop any type of sustainable economic development or um, even to engage fully their cultural practices. And that um, the hope is that going forward that this can be resolved in such a way that eliminates all of the inequity that the state has forced upon the tribes um, as a result of this agreement. Okay. Um, I guess we had a little bit more time than I, mm-hmm. <laughs> than I anticipated. One of the questions uh, that I don't think Nicole has had an opportunity, I think, and it's very, very important, is this piece around reserved rights um, and the, the reservations. The state has argued that the tribes ceded all of their treaty rights, and that's definitely not the case. And, right. and I'm, I'm wondering if that... You could talk to that for a second, Nicole. Get about a minute, Nicole. Sure, yeah. I mean, again, just to reiterate what I said earlier, I mean, there's a clear statement in the Senate report by Congress, and like I said, the Senate report is a vital piece in kind of interpreting MIXA. You can't ignore it from a kind of interpretive standpoint, Um, but there is a clear clear statement that those rights were retained and reserved to the tribes. Um, So, if you look at the report, we kind of outline that. It's all on the website um, that Jamie alluded to earlier. And, and one of the things that we recommend as researchers is for people, anybody, it's all uh, very accessible, very public. We have all the documents online for everybody to review them themselves and and develop their own observations. And they, they will likely find bits of information that we didn't kind of pick up on as, as relevant. Oh, oh, okay, we're, we're out of time. Um, I want to thank my co-host, Sherry Mitchell. And my guests, uh, Jamie Bissonette, uh, Louie, uh, chair of the Maine Tribal State Commission, Nicole Friedrichs. Um, and uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his new CD, Dreamwalk. And our engineer is Amy Brown. Please join us next month for another Wabanaki Windows. Support for WERU comes.